It's just a good reminder, you know, as we put our faith in armies and other things to protect us, the only thing that's going to protect us is His truth marching on through the gospel and hearts being changed, that God can revive the dead and uh, that those people would live for life in Christ again. Uh, We're going to be back in Luke chapter 8. I almost forgot too, uh, Elberino's is your prayer group on Wednesday night? His was the latest group to to join us, so if you're part of his group, it is on Wednesday as well. Forgive me for leaving you out there, Anthony and Cheryl. As we open our Bibles now, we've been in Luke chapter 8 the last couple weeks, observing two women. Both of them are in desperate need of the healing power of Christ. The older woman that we looked at last week, uh, as you remember, she was ritually impure. Under the Mosaic law, she was unclean due to a hemorrhage, so she needed both physical healing and spiritual cleansing, ceremonial cleansing. And when she finally reached out in faith by touching Jesus, uh, his power went out from him and cleansed her immediately. And as we've discovered now, after completing almost a third of the book, right about a third of Luke, eight chapters anyhow today, uh, no unclean condition under the law, no impurity, not leprosy or sexual immorality or any other corruption could taint Christ, couldn't cling to Jesus. Not only was impurity under the law uh, completely incapable of uh, defiling Christ, the law itself was unable to save. It was incapable of cleansing people. uh, Hebrews 7.19 says, The law never made anything perfect. The law didn't come to make us perfect. All the law can achieve is convincing sinners that we are fallen, that we are sinful, that we are imperfect and unrighteous before God. That is what the law shows us. It's what it did for ancient Israel. It's what it still does today in reading the law. It functions as our tutor to expose our defiled sinful condition. It teaches us we need a complete cleansing, which eventually points to Christ. The law never provided a remedy for the sinful human condition, but through temple sacrifices gave a picture of, of the death that had to happen to cover sins, uh, a temporary covering until the arrival of Christ, the Messiah, would come. Still, Hebrews 10 verse 4 assures us, we need to remember, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sin. It never removes sin. Animals, which we know are amoral, They don't understand righteousness. They don't understand holiness before God. Uh, Unreasoning beasts is what Jude 10 refers to them as. They can't function as your sin substitute. They can't be a source of spiritual cleansing in your life. They never were. But to those of us here today who are Christian, Hebrews 10.10 promises us, That we have been sanctified, that means to be made holy. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest, speaking of Old Testament priests, the old 
priests under the law. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, meaning Jesus, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, that is his body, he then sat down at the right hand of God. For salvation for mankind, or the salvation of mankind to occur, there had to come a moral agent. Not one that is amoral, but one who was moral, who succeeded where we've all failed. Every single one of us has failed. We needed one who lived sinless throughout his entire life and was completely righteous, completely incorruptible. A person who lived the entirety of their lives obedient and righteous before God. One who is pure. Scripture says that person is Christ. As one of the youth were telling us, none of us are like him. The God-man. And and Luke chapter 8 tells us that through exercising faith in Jesus as Messiah, the woman with the hemorrhage, she was immediately cleansed. We read about that last week. She was immediately made clean before God through faith in Christ. In fact, Jesus even told her, your faith has made you well. Remember that? Your faith has made you well. Even before Christ was nailed to the cross, by grace she was saved through faith. Even before the cross. This is is what I'd like you to notice. That woman, she didn't understand the crucifixion. As an Old Testament saint or an Old Testament believer, she had faith in what had been revealed about Christ to that point. It's the same for every Old Testament believer. Eve believed that her seed or her descendant would come and crush the serpent's head. Jacob exercised faith, uh, his faith in the lion of the tribe of Judah, who he referred to back in Genesis Uh, Chapter 49, verses 8 to 12, if you'd like to look there later. King David prophesied of a pierced king, one who was pierced, pierced through, a holy one whose body would be put to death, yet would not see decay. That's Psalm 16, verse 10, and Psalm 22, verse 16. And and that picture of Jesus, that, that picture of the Messiah, the Christ throughout the Old Testament... That was painted throughout the Old Testament scriptures had convinced Martha, had convinced Martha that there would be a resurrection from the dead and that Jesus Christ was the one who Israel had been waiting for, long been waiting for. From our scripture reading earlier, Martha told Jesus in John 11, verse 24, I know that he, referring to her deceased brother Lazarus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this then? He asked her. And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, Even he who comes into the world. Now folks, don't be confused. Um, 
if it might be suggested to you that Old Testament believers, the saints of the Old Testament, uh, that they suggest that they were saved somehow through the sacrificial system, uh, or through the law, or even through faith through that old sacrificial system, they were all ultimately saved through faith in a future deliverer, even Eve, who knew there would be her seed that would come and crush the serpent's head, They had faith in a future deliverer, a type of Moses, we are told in Scripture, who would arrive and crush a serpent's head. They also believed in a God, a holy God, who justified the unrighteous. That's all of us, unrighteous. They knew that they were sinners that didn't deserve heaven and had to receive favor, had to receive the grace of God uh, in order to uh, attain, attain eternal life. You know, we certainly have a much richer understanding of all this with the New Testament being completed and everything. We, we have a much fuller and richer understanding of God as deliverer, the one who justifies the ungodly, and that salvation only comes through Him. But they also believed in a deliverer who would come. They believed in a Messiah, a deliverer, a seed who was to come. He came, and we believe in that same deliverer who already rose from the grave. And everyone who has been saved has also believed in a resurrection of the dead. Uh, For what point is it really for God to save us, or, or to save anyone, deliver from sin and crush Satan's head, if we don't continue on into eternity? What would be the point? What would be the point if there wasn't a resurrection from the dead? Even to have a Savior if you're just going to die anyhow. There wouldn't be any point to that if we didn't exist beyond the grave. Martha's statement verifies for us that Israel understood that there would be a resurrection on the last day. That all men will be judged in such a case since the dead are going to be raised. Think about it. Somebody has to have the power and authority to raise them. Right? No getting around that. There has to be someone who has authority and power over death who's going to raise every one of us back to life again. Jesus told Martha, he said, that's me, Jesus said. I am that guy. I am the resurrection and the life, Christ told her. And this is the reason when messengers came from the house of Jairus, and they told Jairus, don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother him Your daughter's already died. When that occurred, that's why Jesus intervened. And he said this in verse 50, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. When Jesus came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, we read. Everyone was weeping and lamenting. Uh, The Gospel of Mark uh, has an account of this as well. He sheds a little bit more light. He compliments what we're reading here. The Gospel of uh, Mark and Matthew both add to this scene at the house. In chapter 9 of Matthew, he writes that, that the flute players were there and the crowd was in a noisy disorder. 
You know, this scene of, of a chaos, it wouldn't have been that unusual in that culture, actually. For us, it would be. We, we, we're very solemn and we're very quiet and very reserved. Back then, it wouldn't have been that unusual at all. Expressions of mourning, expressions of sympathy in that day, they, they were very um, expressive. They were very dramatic in the ancient Near East. They were very expressive people, especially for women. It was common for them to wail in grief, to wail out loudly. It, it, it kind of functioned kind of like a sympathy card today. If someone would be wailing for your loss, it would show them that they cared. Showed them, it would show you that they were shouldering your loss. You might not believe this, but upon the death of a loved one, people went out of their way to demonstrate that they cared. Even if they didn't feel an emotional attachment. If they didn't know them, it was no problem. They just faked it. Honestly, it wasn't even uncommon to hire whalers for a funeral. Believe it or not, um, the, the Mishnah, that would be the, the oral Jewish tradition that they followed. It, it actually required families, even poor families, to hire at least two flute players and at least one wailing woman. That's what the culture demanded. And, and, and that Mishnah, even being a false understanding of religion, as they extrapolated things out from the law, um, they already knew, though, they, it was, they knew it was appropriate for them to show, to, to display that that person who died mattered. They wanted to display that th- that person would be missed. Wailing, flute playing, other, other ways of sharing that grief were very, very common. To visibly express the sorrow for the family who's lost a member. Even if you yourself didn't emotionally feel anything for that member. It was seen as a courtesy. They, they didn't make excuses like, well, you know, I, I didn't really know them. doesn't really matter because, you know, I never knew their relative and never really met them. I didn't really know the person who died. Or, you know, since I don't feel any personal anguish, then I'm not obligated. It's not my responsibility to shoulder the loss of the one who did. They, they didn't say that. They didn't say that. Um, today, probably the minimum expression, duty of expression, if you want to call it that, in my opinion, you can agree or disagree, would it be to send a sympathy card. If you know someone and they lost a, a father, a mother, a spouse, or a child, you're going to send a sympathy card. You might not wail all over the phone, but you'll send a card. Even if you didn't meet that immediate family member. You know what I'm saying? Because you're concerned about the person who has had the loss. As a person of faith, as a Christian, caring about others in the body of Christ, it ought to bring about a visible display of that, especially when a parent, child, or spouse dies. If you love the brethren, you'd sacrifice three minutes to write out a card, right? Three minutes. If you considered the person a close friend, you'd probably add a phone call, total of six minutes invested. You aren't even asked to wail. 
we share the burdens and the loss of others in the body of Christ. Because even if you didn't emotionally care about their loved one, their deceased loved one, still at least have to fake it. Because shoulder and grief matters. And, and you know what that will eventually do? It will cause your heart to change. It, it will cause you to experience a compassion for that person. You remember Jesus' response uh, back in chapter 7, I believe it was, when he came upon the widow whose only son had died in the funeral profession. And uh, we, we learned that word, splonknitsomai. He felt deeply within him, even though Christ had never met either the widow or the son, to the best that we know. He shared the grief with her. He had a heart of compassion. That's what Jesus would do. You know, it would be a great practice as a parent. My parents did this, so this just came to mind. When you know someone in church, even a neighbor, even if they don't come to church, even if they're not a Christian, but if you know someone who has lost a parent or a, or a spouse or a child, perhaps a sibling, especially if they're close, uh, the next time that you see them or the next Sunday that they're in church, whichever that be, train up your child in the way they should go and tell them to go up to, to Mrs. Johnson, whether they're your child's 8 years old or 12 years old or 16 years old, and, and tell them, you know, go up to Mrs. Johnson and tell her, I'm sorry to hear that your dad died. You know, they might not care at all. They might not have never met Mrs. Johnson's dad. But those children will learn to have a heart of compassion for those who have suffered a loss. It will build their character. Your child doesn't even have to emotionally feel anything in order to learn to grow in compassion for others. Perhaps the musicians and the whalers here were faking it. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know if they laughed because they were insensitive to the whole scene or whether they were hired or what the situation was. Or if they simply didn't believe that Jesus could help. My impression is, is they just didn't believe that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. They didn't believe in him. For when he told them, stop, stop weeping, for she has not died but is asleep, they began laughing at Jesus, knowing that she had died. Thinking that notorious healer, the one who had healed so many, arrived too late, it implies they're directly mocking Jesus. Not a safe place to be. You know, you know who's this guy think he is? He's a carpenter's son, and he's been going around all this fanfare. And now he's trying to make people think that he's got the power over life and of death. Who does this guy think he is? Because they knew he hadn't fallen asleep, or the girl hadn't fallen asleep. I mean, they weren't quite as sanitized as we are from death in our culture. That Usually people died in the home. Gail understands what that is like recently. And that brings you much closer to that, to that death. But there it always, almost always happened at home. They knew what death looked like. They knew she hadn't fallen asleep. They knew the girl had died, and they didn't believe that Jesus could do anything about it. So they mocked him. They mocked him. 
And we'll see later on here that ju- uh, Jesus actually judges them for it. That'll be at the end of the passage. Folks, you and I cannot straddle the fence on this one. We cannot straddle the fence. Either you believe as Martha believed, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who has power even over death itself. You either believe that, that He's Lord over all, or you join the mockers. It's one or the other. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, or you think you mock him? You mock him. Um, if in doing so you're you're suggesting that Jesus is a fraud. Scripture offers no middle ground. There's no safe space on this one. Either you accept the holy word of God and believe that Christ is a resurrection and a life, or you join the other mockers who believe that it's fiction. One or the other. The most riveting of the Gospels, in my opinion, is John. Written by the Apostle John. You can't read through the Gospel of John without having to come to conclusions about the identity of Christ. You can't can't straddle a fence and remain intellectually honest. Either the claims that he makes are genuine and for real, he is the Christ, the Lord of all, or you mock him. To the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman replied, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Pretty clear. How about John 5 verse 21 where Jesus declares this, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. John 5 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him, meaning God who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. John 5.39, Jesus says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. How about John 5, verse 46? For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Who can say such things? John three seventeen. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Finally, I'll give you one more. John uh, chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. For not even the Father judges anyone, says Jesus, but he has given all judgment to the Son. All judgment to the Son. 
so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. You know, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every single knee. It will either be a bow of gratitude for those of us who have uh, inherited salvation through faith, or it will be a bow of compliance unto condemnation. Only two options. There's no straddling the fence. Only Christ, the Son of God, has unhindered power over the living and over the dead. And He's going to prove that in this passage. God the Father has delegated all judgment to Him. Hiding in your room isn't going to change things. All judgment has been delegated to the Son. So in your heart and mind, either you accept Him as Savior, you accept Him as Lord of the universe, or you sit in the company of the mockers. The Gospel of Matthew says that Jesus instructed them, meaning the mockers, to leave. He instructed them to leave. The Gospel of Mark indicates that that Jesus drove the mockers out of the house. In fact, Mark uses the same language as when Jesus cleansed the temple and he drove out the money changers. Exact same Greek word order and phraseology here as he drove out uh, these flute players and the mockers who didn't believe out of the house. He expelled them from the house. Why did he do that? Why did he only enter with three of his disciples... The mother and the father, only five, only five got to go in with them, Uh, six if you include the girl. They got to witness what Jesus did in the room. The, The mockers didn't get to see anything. They were pushed out of the house. They were driven from the house. Only six people uh, got to see what is going on, and now you and I, you and I get to see. What, what happened in that room through the writings of the apostles and through the Holy Scriptures, you and me. We're given privilege to see what the mockers didn't get to see. And what we get to see requires that you make a decision about the Son. In verse 54 it reads, He, meaning Jesus, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Talitha kum. Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she immediately got up, and Jesus gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. You know, just as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, at the command of his voice, this girl rises from the dead immediately. Immediately. Do you, th- you think her parents were impressed? Verse 55 indicates her parents were amazed. And then he, meaning Jesus, instructed them to tell no one. Don't tell anyone what happened. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? This command to secrecy, you'll see it in several places in Scripture. Don't tell anyone. Or once he heals someone, don't don't tell. Uh, You'll see that in several locations. I I don't think there's a consistent answer to that question. I don't think it's always the same answer as what I'm saying. Um, Sometimes it seems as though Jesus were trying to retard or slow down his progress uh, to Jerusalem. You know, there's one point after he fed the 5,000 that it said that the people wanted to take him by force and make him king. Remember that? So he was trying to hold off... uh, 
the miracles seem to cause the crowds to want to act radically. He, Christ came to be despised and rejected. He didn't come to be uh, um, forcibly made king through some kind of revolution of the people. But here I think the command of secrecy might function more like parables. Like parables. In Luke 8, verse 10, recently we heard Jesus tell his disciples this, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So parables disguised the truth from those who were unwilling or mocking, those who, who, who wouldn't receive the truth as a form of judgment. Parables were a form of judgment. That's why they were given. To hide the truth. Who who would be judged in this case? As the girl was raised and Jesus told the parents, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what you saw and heard and hear. By them remaining silent about what happened, who would be impacted by that? The mockers. The mockers. The, the girl would eventually come out, you know, come out of the room, out of the house. And, and then the mockers are going to have to make a decision as to what happened. And, you know, it's really easy to explain things away if you really want to. Oh, she, she must have been in a deep coma. Nobody really knew. It's, it's easy to explain away Christ and the miracles of Christ if you want to. Jesus was just going to allow them to do that. Don't tell anyone what you saw in here. But the parents knew better. They saw Christ call this girl's spirit back to her. They saw her get off the bed and rise. Jesus told them, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anybody about the truth. Folks, he has complete power over life and death. And you have to, if you've not accepted Christ for who He truly is, that is the Savior of the world who died for our sins and He Himself rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. I have to ask you, when are you going to put down your flute and stop the mocking? Stop the mocking today and accept Christ. When are we going to get serious about who Christ is? I'm going to invite the men forward to serve the Lord's Supper as you ponder that question in your hearts. During communion, Christians symbolically share a meal to commemorate how we know a lot more than previous generations did in Israel. We know that God sent His own Son, His only Son, to be conceived of the Holy Spirit and to be born through a virgin. And since Scripture indicates that sin is passed down, it is inherited through the Father. Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit and being God's only Son, inherited no sin. He lived in human flesh. He was tempted every way that we are, yet without sin. He lived the perfectly obedient life that we haven't. Then he offered himself as a holy sacrifice unto God uh, to die for our sins on the cross. And all who believe and confess Jesus as Lord are credited with his righteousness. 
Therefore, Christians, we know that we enter the presence of God not based on our own goodness, because we are sin, but we enter heaven on the basis of Christ's righteousness. For by grace we have been saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone boast. If you have accepted Christ for what Scripture reveals Him to be, the Savior of the world, and you haven't concocted a different version of Christ in your mind, fabricated a different Christ whom you want to believe in, but if you accept Christ for who He is in Holy Scripture, we invite you to join this holy meal of remembrance with us.